Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And in today's episode, we are talking about treating and managing teens and adolescents with chronic pain. And to help us through this lofty topic is Dr. Abby Gordon. She is a a sports physical therapist at Seattle Children's Hospital and has served as the team physical therapist for the Seattle Storm for the past eight seasons. She owns a mobile PT practice, primarily working with women with chronic pain and body dysmorphia, body dysphoria, and or disordered eating. She is an APTA Washington delegate and helped develop her first legislative motion, RC-1622, the APTA's position statement for inclusion of the LGBTQIA community, which the House of Delegates passed last summer. Her blog, Abby's World, is where you can find physical therapy and women's basketball-related thoughts. So today, uh, what we talk about is Abby explains the types of symptoms, diagnoses, and treatments typically found in teenagers suffering from chronic pain. She speaks about the interdisciplinary team that examines and plans treatments for each patient and the importance of providing peace of mind to the family, And finally, shares her advice on communicating with families of teenagers and with the children themselves. So big thanks to Abby for coming on to the podcast this week, and everyone enjoy today's episode. Hey, Abby, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. After seeing so much of you on Twitter, I feel like I already know you, but this is the first time we've met in person, quote unquote. So great to meet you, Karen. So today we're going to be talking about chronic pain in teens. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the general public just doesn't connect those two. They don't think that chronic pain can happen to a teenager. I think most of the time people think adults and most of the time people think older adults, not even young adults, right? I'd agree. I would definitely agree. And I think that that probably comes from a lot of the literature being based on chronic low back pain versus on like chronic body-wide pain, which is technically tends to be a bit more of what we see in our chronic pain clinic. Um, But yeah, I I do agree that the research and a lot of what we learn about is more in adults. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about the population that you see and the kinds of chronic pain issues that these teens are living with. Sure. So part of my role at Seattle Children's Hospital is working with their chronic pain management team, and it's an interdisciplinary uh, group of people. So we start with evaluations and you have an anesthesiologist, so a pain physician, and you have a psychologist, and then you have a physical therapist or occupational therapist. So I would be one of the evaluating physical therapists for one of these patients. We see three in a day because they're there for hours and hours. So they meet with the whole group at one time and they tell us their origin story about where their pain started and how long they've been having it. And then they'll break off and they'll see each of us providers one-on-one. So I'll do a physical therapy evaluation and then my coworkers will do the same. And then we'll come together and we'll discuss what treatment strategies we want to use with these patients. Do they need imaging? Do they need blood work? Do they need mental health counseling? Do they need physical therapy? Have they had physical therapy that was maybe too intense or maybe way underloaded? And I I think with teenagers, a lot of the time they've been to a PT clinic, maybe that was 
general population where maybe the PT was too afraid to load them, where we see teenagers all the time and we're not afraid to give them weights. So their diagnoses are usually like multiple joint pain or pain of the knees and ankles and hips, but just lower extremity. Sometimes they are um, visceral type abdominal pain or headaches. Um, but for the most part, it's like chronic body-wide pain and some are associated with fatigue. Most aren't, um, but those need to kind of be treated a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to see a little bit of the long COVID, which is new and they're not all really being diagnosed that way. It's more of like chronic fatigue or chronic body aches, but we also partner with rheumatology for juvenile idiopathic arthritis or maybe mm-hmm. even scoliosis. So wide variety of diagnoses, but it's not usually just, just straight chronic low back pain, which I did see as an adult or even chronic like neck pain. I don't really feel like it's the same as when I treated adults. And is there the root cause, root cause, the quote on, cause everybody always talks about, we find the root cause of your pain, right? <laughs> so when you're talking about these teenagers with more widespread multi-joint pain, what do you say to someone who says, well, what's the root cause? I think that's tough. I think sometimes if there's like complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS, then we do have an initiating injury most of the time. And those kids tend to come through as well. Um, So with those, it's like, well, you had this injury and the system went a little haywire and now we're going to get them back. But for a lot of them, there isn't always an initiating insult or there was like, I had a virus it went away and then this stuff all came back. So I think the doctors try to give peace of mind to families by suggesting what it could possibly be, but I don't think there's a as much of a high level of certainty. And so that brings me now, you just mentioned the word families. So what do you say? Cause I teach, I work with a lot of teens and adolescent, mainly sports injuries. So I am not working with teens with widespread chronic pain. I am working with your 14 year old who had an ACL reconstruction or a sprained ankle. And I find working with the families sometimes is a breeze. And they're like, whatever you, whatever you say, we're going with it. Sometimes it's, you know, why can't you get my son or daughter ready to play tennis this weekend when they dislocated their shoulder on a Monday and parents are expecting that child to play on Saturday. So what type of communication do you have with the parents and what tips do you have for any healthcare professional listening on how to work with parents, guardians, et cetera? Yeah, that's an amazing question. And I think I also probably should note that my I'm at Seattle Children's. I am a sports physical therapist. So I'm in the sports clinic and half of my caseload is just what you're describing. It's post-op ACLs, post-op MPFL, which if you are in adults, you probably never see what happens if your kid repeatedly dislocates their patella. The surgery is different, but it looks just like ACL rehab in a lot of ways. So like I'm seeing about 25% post-op knees, 25% of like other orthopedics injuries, and then 50% of these chronic pain, chronic fatigue. Um, So I get to see both. And the, the, the conversation about what do you do with parents, of course, is it depends just like everything in physical therapy, but We fortunately have the ability to tell parents, your kid's over 10 years old, you don't need to come in with them. And some parents fight that and some parents don't. And so with the chronic pain group, 
what I like to use as my tool is today, I'm going to teach your child something. And if you're here and you hear it from me, they can no longer teach it to you later because you're going to have already heard it. So what I would like you to do is I'd like you to sit in the lobby or go get a coffee, leave the building, go get some, there's no sunshine here, but go get some light, (laughs) maybe some rain in Seattle. And then I'm going to be with your kid for 40 minutes and then we're going to walk out and I want them to teach you what I just taught them about whatever we're working on that day. Now, it might be the exercise that they're going to describe. It may not be any pain neuroscience education or it might be, but I have, after a few sessions, I've been able to successfully get parents to say, okay. And then sometimes it's, I've recognized that if the parent is really anxious about what we're doing, the kid really picks it up. So for me to say, hey, did you notice we did the exact same thing today, but you were less nervous? Why do you think that is? And they're like, well, my mom's not here. And then I'm like, do you think you maybe want to tell mom that when she's anxious, it makes you anxious and it contributes to what's going on? So it's it's hard. <laughs> you have to develop the rapport. I'm a huge therapeutic alliance first, above all things, therapist. Um, so in the nicest way possible, I try to kick them out, but I do it respectfully and politely Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know sometimes though I feel like they're too laid back and then I want them to see what happens when you push their kid Mm -hmm. I have one right now really unfortunate situation with a head injury or probably about like seven weeks into concussion care which kind of sometimes falls under that chronic pain and the parents are so laid back they're worried about their kid they're getting the kid medical care but it's like they won't go to school tell them to go to school. And I'm like, do you say that I'm going to bring you to school, but you can bring them home if they can't make it through the day? Like I'm not in your house. And then Mm -hmm. they watch them exercise for 40 straight minutes with no pain, no complaints, because I'm like, let's try this. Let's try this. And they try everything and they miss their friends. So, you know, find the things that push the kid and then encourage the parents to just match it is is kind of my approach. Yeah. And what do you do with let's say when the parents' expectations are not quite realistic. I try to use as much science as I can. And usually that is healing timelines. Like Mm -hmm. we talked about the ACL. I for sure have had patients. Well, my surgeon says it's going to be nine months, but I'm a really great athlete. I'm sure it'll be six. And I'm just like, we have a lot of research that says it should be two years. So you should be grateful that it's nine months here because, you know, like, explaining the science, I think sometimes helps, but then there, sometimes I think there's better benefit to letting them play. If the risks aren't super high, we do the risk benefit measurements. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like a kid with uh, patellofemoral syndrome, where there's not like the same healing timelines. I don't ever really want to pull people out of their activities. And I think some physical therapists might. So I'm more of a, we're going to do everything you can tolerate. And if you need to stop, then you stop. And if you recover in 24 hours, we know that we're in, a, in the right place and we just have to keep preparing ourselves to better tolerate. So I like the 24 hour response healing because the chronic pain, it doesn't look like that. It's I exercised for however long and I couldn't do anything for days and days and days. So you can see that difference. And I mm-hmm. think that they respond pretty well if they understand 24 hours. Oh, you didn't respond that quickly. We can't do more yet but I I try to encourage as much activity as I can. Yeah, I know it's, it can be very, very difficult. And sometimes as the therapist, you're sort of stuck in between the teen or the patient 
and the parents. So one really wants one thing, one wants the other thing. Um, the complete opposite sometimes where you have a teen who really wants to play their sport and the parents who's like, you can never play it again. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I, like I've had patients who are patients, parents who were looking to me to make the determination of, no, you can't play. Yeah. yeah I, can't. I think when you flip that scenario too, it's really interesting because I don't know if you've seen this also, but have you seen the scenario where the parent is like, I need my kid to be the prima ballerina and the kid does not want to dance. Yes. So they're not that they don't have pain, but the pain almost becomes amplified because they don't have to participate if they're in pain. So those are interesting conversations to have too. And they come out really interestingly when, when the parents are removed and they're like, look, I can do everything. I just don't want to dance anymore. Yeah. So then oh, that becomes I've, a hard conversation too. Yeah, I've had that exact scenario of the child say, say, I, I I actually I hate going to ballet classes, but my parents said I made a commitment and so I have to do it until the end of the year. Yep. And I was like, Oh, oh okay, like I, I understand that. And then I have the conversation with the parent or you know, I had a kid who had telephemoral pain and he was a tennis player. And mom was like, when can he play? When can he play? When can he play? And he has to play this weekend. He needs a scholarship. So once you start talking scholarship and money and things like that, it things become amp become even more amplified, I guess. And so I said, oh, you know, I think I'd like to see him on the stairs. Are there stairs out in the hallway? So I take him out on the stairs. And he says, he's, the, kid, the kid said to me, he's like, I just need a break. I just want a break. I just want a little break. And I was like, yeah. oh, done. I will talk problem to your solved. problem solved. I will talk to the parents and you will get a little if, break. I think that that's when you take the moment to remember who's the patient and who am I responsible for? Right. Because sure, I don't want to be a, in an argument with a parent that never feels good, but the patient right. is my child and they're not, is the patient is the child. Right. That is who my allegiance has to be to. And if they're not capable of advocating for themselves because they just don't know how to yet, let's teach them. Let's show them that it's their body, that they're the ones who should say what's done to it, what they put it through. Like, I mean, I have this conversation with students at the beginning of being a clinical instructor too. You have to ask permission to ask a child to touch them. Every single evaluation. I don't know why this is like, we didn't do this in PT school. It was never like, here's your no. practical exam and here's your professor who you're going to evaluate. There's never any, is it okay that I'm going to touch you? And I for sure have had kids say no. And a parent say, that's the doctor. You have to let them. And I say, actually, it's their body. And they will give me permission when they trust me to. Mm -hmm. Not I choose. And I, I I mean, it's not my job to empower kids, but I also take it as my job to empower kids. And that's, that's one way that I can do that, that hopefully my students take with them. Yes. I always ask. I had a seven-year-old with like an M MCL injury, um, but uh the first time, and this is like my, it was like a friend of mine, their child. So I sat down and I was like, oh, is it okay if I touch your knee? And she was like, yes, it's my MCL. <laughs> she heard the doctor say, you know, sweet, yeah. sweet kid. Yeah. So how does, so when you're working with these teens, especially teens or adolescents with chronic pain, how do you feel like working with them translates into working with other patients, let's say maybe patients without chronic pain or, or even your adult population, or has it impacted it at all? 
for sure. It's impacted, in my opinion, a lot. And I think it occurs in two specific places. The first is at the very beginning at my evaluation, where I think I always prioritize therapeutic alliance, but now I do it even more so where I try really hard to not even ask pain until I know several things that interest the kids or, you know, whether or not they like school, what they're maybe want to have as a career. Just, I asked a lot of questions that have nothing to do with it. And parents have been like, why do you care about this? And I was like, your kid's not going to talk to me until they know that I want to know their dog's name. So, mm-hmm. so I start there and I, I do think that it has made an impact in my just relationships with patients, even if they're just acutely having an injury or whatever, because now I connect to them as a person instead of to just their pain. And I think that a lot of kids, when they're in pain, their parents get talked to, they don't get talked to. And it's like, here's the kid with knee pain, not Joe who likes soccer, who happens to be injured right now. So I think it brings back the humanity, which maybe I had even forgotten until I was working with this population. And it makes, it makes me sad of how many mistakes I probably made along the way and how this has changed my practice. But then also with the chronic pain population, because we don't have that initiating factor a lot of the time, my evaluations, and maybe this is the edge of the PT scope of practice, that maybe is a conversation for a different day, but I ask them, how do you sleep? Do you drink water? What is your nutrition like? What are your favorite fruits and vegetables? These are kids, if they don't eat anything green, fine. But if they tell me their favorite vegetable is carrots, I'm going to ask mom to have more carrots in the house. So I asked these basics and I asked them to all of my patients now, which I didn't always do before, but Mm -hmm. how impactful is a good night's sleep when you're recovering from an ACL surgery? It's everything. And by the way, that's not the edge of physical therapy practice. That is smack in physical therapy practice. That is part of house of delegates charge that we talk about nutrition, that we talk about lifestyle. It is part of lifestyle medicine and integrative medicine, which just had a podcast about that with Joe Tata and Ginger Garner because they wrote uh, were the co-editors of a, the book, um, integrative, uh, integrative and Functional Medicine and Physical Therapy. And it's asking those questions. Part of it is yeah. sleep hygiene. What are you eating? Like, yeah. are you eating like junk all day and soda? Are you sleeping just a couple hours a night? Is it waking you up at night? You know, what, like you said, what kind of vegetables and fruits do you like to eat? Um, All of that matters. So it's an interesting story too, because, so I mentioned that, well, you and I know I work with a basketball team. So a couple of years ago, I was helping with physical evaluations for these basketball players that were brand new coming in to the Seattle storm. And one of the players, this, this is a 22 ish year old person, right? They're drafted out of college. And she's in for her physical exam. She's never been injured before. She's very healthy. But we say, how are you getting along in Seattle? And she's like, I don't know how to cook. And I don't know how to grocery shop for myself. Because your college teams at the elite level feed you. Right. So like, you know, you like salads, but you're just going to go to Whole Foods and just go to the salad bar. And it's going to take all of your money in two weeks. Sure. Like there's these small things. So obviously at the kid level, where they're not really cooking for themselves. Sometimes I'm like, do you think you could make a sandwich yourself? Like maybe you should ask mom if you can make your own sandwich because then you've accomplished something. We get a little bit of self pride and you know what you're fueling yourself with. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't do a lot of nutrition consultation. I do know it's in our scope. It's actually in my upcoming blog post 
because of the new pediatric guidelines for kids of obese and overweight BMIs that came out last week, which is terrible. But um, that's, I, I think that when I say that it's fringe, it's just like, it's not what our number one priority is in the clinic. And I think we should be prioritizing it better. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. I always ask about food and sleep, even with the seven-year-old that I saw, I said, oh, are you sleeping? Does it feel like you're waking up? And she was like, um, well, I'm, she's like, well, I am waking up now, but it's because of the nightmares. And I look over to the parents. I was like, I think the nightmare is her knee hurts. <laughs> I think that's the nightmare. And her parents were like, we didn't even put two and two together that she's been waking up in the middle of the night saying she's having a nightmare. I'm like, no, it's her knee hurts. And so she's waking up in the middle of the night. And then as she's healed, she doesn't wake up anymore. But I always ask, how are you sleeping? And she's like, yeah. I'm better. Let's give another patient case because this one's from a couple of years ago. And I yeah. just think that it's mind boggling to me. Um, the patient had uh, was referred with plantar fasciitis and that that makes sense to an adult ortho PT what that is, but like kids don't actually really get like they really don't get plantar fasciitis. They get foot pain, but the or they get like Seavers apophysitis. Yeah, but, but plantar fasciitis is not a common diagnosis in the pediatric population. Correct. So immediately when I see this, I'm kind of like, this is interesting. And the kid has had foot pain for two years, and they are very young, a little kid with two hmm. years of foot pain. And I get to know this kid. I get to do the therapeutic alliance. I found out all of their favorite things. She likes butterflies. I go get butterfly stickers to bring her when she comes in. And we're talking and we're moving and we're doing exercises and the pain's not really changing, but she's starting to like me. And so I start asking her, what do you eat? What do you drink? Like all of those other things that I, she was too shy the first day, but I started asking and eating was very obviously a thing that this kid could not do. And I sent a message to the doctor and I said, I'm concerned about this child because they're telling me they can't eat. Mom says they come home with their lunchbox hasn't been touched. They sometimes have a few bites at dinner. They're not eating and I'm treating them for foot pain and I'm not going to get rid of her from PT, but like, can we get a nutrition consult? So our dietitians are, I, I, dietitians are also mental health providers in many ways, depending on how you look at them. And our dietitian evaluates this child and the child was sitting at their kitchen table when a family member died. <gasps> so they were sitting and this was when they were very, very little, like many years before I saw this child. And so now she is not, does not feel safe at her kitchen table. So they start doing snacks at TV trays in the, in front of the TV, because that's a different setting. And the kid needed nutrition in a way that PT was never going to fix that foot pain. Right. But it was just one of these, like, I don't think that any of us would have ever figured this out with a one-off visit. Like the kid had to be able to feel comfortable and start expressing what was going on. And the dietitian sent me a message saying, this kid only said it because you kept telling her that she needed to have her favorite snack wherever she wanted it. It was just mind blowing to me. And of course, then this kid gets injured six years later and comes back and tells me that they still eat the favorite snack. But now that like, it's just amazing to see kids grow over time. This is why I love pediatrics. Right. Well, and again, it shows you the importance of nutrition. For sure. Headaches because... and nutrition, concussions and nutrition. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I was really surprised on the concussions and nutrition because I sustained a concussion on Christmas Eve. Oh, so yeah, 
I hit my head doing laundry. Jessica Schwartz said it might be the first ever concussion via laundry case. Um, but when I told her a couple of days later, I was like, I think I have a mild concussion. Like I've got all the symptoms. And the first prescription she gave me was the right foods to eat. Changing your salt intake, make sure you're hydrating, stuff like that. Yep. And uh, fish oil, caffeine. bright, oh. brightly covered. I don't, I don't um, do caffeine. Um, but brightly colored foods like, um, you know, strawberries, blueberries, pomegranates, greens, fish, things like that. Like antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Love it. And, you know, no, no sugar, no sweets, no um, pasta, no breads. And so I told my mom this because I was, you know, I had this headache when I was home with my parents. And I said, you know, these are the foods that I'm not supposed to eat. And my mom was like, oh, that's great because that's everything you ate on Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pasta, bread, cookies, sugar. Yeah. But um, but yeah, well, I never short -term knew. Short-term changes for the brain fog right. and the chemical soup that occurs because concussions, as we know, are a chemical change. Right, right. And so it, but it definitely helped. But I had no idea what a big part of concussion, what what uh, food and your diet is such a big part of concussion care. So, you know, and luckily it was very, 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 very mild, you know, well, and, and you had the best person to ask about it. Too. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, people are like, you didn't go to a doctor. I was like, I did go to a doctor, <laughs> Dr. Jess Jessica Schwartz. I did like, and one of my patients is a doctor and he evaluated me like the next week. And he was like, oh, I think you're okay. But it did take about mm, 18 to 20 days to resolve. That's the average, right? Three yeah. weeks is the average. And by the time I get you in the clinic, you have stopped going to school. You sleep all day and all night. And you have right. And it's a mess. Right. So, right. And mine yeah. was like, we get the post-concussion syndrome. Yeah. Right. Right. Anyway, not to go off on a concussion tangent, but as we're talking, as you were talking about food and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, so what, what else, what did we miss on any key considerations for working with these teens? I think also along the nutrition line, because it's something that's of interest to me. And also when I treat my private clients outside the clinic is considerations for body dysmorphia, body dysphoria. And I, I, I mean, I'm in Washington, you're in New York, we're in places where medical care for trans kids is still allowed. But I think that in other places, this probably is something that's going to be different. But so for me, I have kids with body dysphoria who feel like their body doesn't fit their true self or their true identity. And I, I, I'm shocked at the number of kids who come out to their physical therapist. I don't know how many mm. people experience this, but we see them over and over again. And I think other than maybe a therapist who you might see regularly, if you only see a doctor once every however many months, like if they get to know you, you're going to hear some of their inner problems or challenges. And so I see kind of more of that than I ever would have expected. Mm. And um, it's related probably to disordered eating and depression and anxiety and all things that I think we're seeing more of in kids right now. And just is something that I care strongly about. So I keep an ear open for it. And I, I know I'm blessed to be at a facility that has interdisciplinary providers that they're going to get help. And I have a gender clinic that they can get help. So it's not like every place or rural America where, you know, these kids right. might be confused. You may not have ever seen it as a physical therapist. And what do you do if you have seen it? So it's a interesting consideration that I think we're seeing probably more and more in teenagers 
than potentially before. And if they come to you as a physical therapist, what is your next step? So for the people listening, you know, if they're in this situation and you have a child with disordered eating or, you know, body dysphoria or dysmorphia, what is, what is our job as the physical therapist, as it relates to this patient? I, I think it's just making sure the kids stay safe because they're, we know that the risk for um, suicide in this population is so high. Like we have to make sure our kids, the kid, the kid patients are staying safe. So referrals where you're able to back to PCPs or pediatricians, mental health counselors, if they're available, understanding the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist, which is a soapbox that I've been on many times where you do not need a license in the country to be a nutritionist. I can say I learned that apples are better for you than Cheetos. So I am a nutritionist. If you are a registered dietitian, you have a certification, you have a license, just like we do as PTs. Right. And you have rigorous standards and continuing education requirements that you need to uphold. So understanding that kids seeing dietitians is different than kids seeing a nutritionist and seeing if those are available to you mm-hmm. and potentially sharing uh, available resources for like a gender clinic, if that's an option. There probably aren't that many in the country. And I mean, I'm sure there's resources online that are available, but I always ask the kids that, and the, I, I don't know if the laws are different. I'm sure the laws are different in every state, but like mm-hmm. mental health laws are protected for kids as young as like 14. So if the kid says, you can't share this with my parent, you shouldn't be sharing it with the parent, but you can ask the kid, how can I help you? And I, I think also if the kids are already doing things to their bodies, I don't mean like self-harm, but obviously we need to be aware of that. But we're seeing kids that are binding their chests. It really does impact cardiovascular tolerance in the clinic. So right. having the conversation of, are you binding today? Or do you mind telling me if you are so we can change what we're doing? Or so I can be aware so you don't pass out? Like, are you doing it safely? Or are you just using the ACE wrap that you found laying around the house and it's super tight? Right, like, right. There's a lot to be asked for this population. And I I only think we're going to learn more and more moving forward. Yeah. As time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would think as more research comes out on this population as well. Agree. Yeah. 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 And now you had said, um, during, during that part of, of our conversation, you had mentioned, uh, mental health and, and do refer to mental health specialists, but you know, whether you have a teen with chronic pain or a teen with body dysmorphia, um, there may be mental health components. Well, there may be mental health components to any injury, I would argue, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and so how do you do these teens? Can they separate their mental health from their physical health? Do you have any examples? What do you do as the PT to help them understand that there's a connection, but that connection doesn't have to be so overwhelming. Yeah. I am a believer that physical health and mental health cannot be separated. I spend a lot of time listening to Dr. Rachel's offness Mm -hmm. and others who feel similarly. Um, I, I actually in the clinic for the first time this week had a patient tell me that their physical health was fine and their emotional health was in the toilet. And that was the Mm. words they used. And I was like, let's unpack this. Why do you think they're separate? Also, 
how do you think your physical health is so good when you haven't been able to get out of bed for the last three days and you got dragged to physical therapy? Like let's, you know, so it was the first time someone ever said those words to me where I've been reading about this and trying to understand the best ways to teach it. And mm-hmm. I don't like putting things in the brain, but we have one brain. So if, if the brain is involved, how can they be so separate? So mm-hmm. trying to help them understand that, that pain includes the emotional centers of our brain and, and trying to kind of explain that it's not just like a pain center, which is, I think a thing we thought earlier, like when I was in PT school, I feel like I remember this is where vision is in your brain. And this is where oh, yeah. language is. And I think I associated a spot with pain. And now I don't know if that was how it was believed then, or just how I understood it. But now mm-hmm. it's like, no, there's all these different areas and the emotion piece is part of it. And let's, you know, unpack that you can't really separate the two. Yeah. Yeah. I could not agree more as someone who has lived with chronic neck pain. Um, they are mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, if you will. I think it's all connected. And I think when you're living with chronic pain, you lose some things from your life, Yep. which I think is very, very difficult. I don't know how, I mean, I don't think I had the capacity to work through a lot of that until more recently. So I don't know how a teen works through the yeah. inability to do the things that their peers are doing or the fear behind doing things your peers are doing. Um, I gave a talk at Graham Sessions. I guess I can talk about it because it's my talk um, that really spoke about the fragility you feel when you have chronic pain, like you really feel, you believe, I should say, you don't even feel it. You believe you're fragile. So I don't know in your experience working with these kids, what do they feel that they can't do what their friends can do or their peers? And and how do you deal with them when they inevitably yeah. may say things like that to you? I think what, what I've noticed a lot of is that the kids with chronic pain, especially if they're not going to school, they, they kind of remove themselves from a lot and they become socially very isolated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've all been talking biopsychosocial and I think that bio and psycho are a little bit more easy to understand. And social is kind of hard because like you have a family and you're with them. But so one of the key pieces that I start to introduce is who are your closest friends and how do we get you to FaceTime them? Or how do we get you to have them come over and you sit together for 20 minutes? Like mm-hmm. what, how can I get social? Cause I think we're such social beings that if your friend says, Oh, you don't feel good. That stinks. Let's watch a movie together. At least you've gotten out of bed to watch the movie or you've done right. something different than your usual cycle. So I, I wasn't always focused on social, but I started to become a little bit more so. And I also think just considering pain and an emotional center, I believed it because I was learning it. I believed that you could have emotionally induced pain, but I I hadn't experienced it until grief. And we don't have to go into detail, but I experienced extreme grief and it hurt so much more than any pain I've ever experienced Hmm. that I started to kind of get some of this biopsychosocial in a new angle. And I think that it changed a little bit of how much I approach the psychosocial because the supports impact everything so much. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that loss, whether it be loss of you or the agency over your body, loss of something external that, that happened around you, not necessarily to you physically. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's still loss. Yeah. Loss of identity is loss. Mm -hmm. People grieve their previous selves. You know, you graduate high school and your high school sports career is over. That version of you is gone. And I think that we don't realize how impactful that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or when you have, have an injury or a chronic pain, like a, a child with an ACL reconstruction, like they're out, like you said, I'm with you two years, but they're out a year and change, um, depending on the doctor. Um, but do we really take the time to understand what that has done to them or, you know, that, cause right. they do have to grieve. And so I, after, you know, having chronic pain for so many years and very much in tune with this so that when I do work with these kids, I get it. Yeah. You know, and I, I make sure that, that I bring is it up when you're post-op ACLs, that's, you know, one of the things that changed your post-op ACL patient Get them to go hang out with their team, go to practice, tell them to take stats, tell the coach to teach them what they're doing, have Mm -hmm. them pick a drill that the players get to do that they wish they were doing even though, or find a way for the knee injured patient who's no longer on crutches to stand on the court and do all the passing. Why can't they? Sure. Sure. I get them shooting free throws long before they're probably walking. Sure. I mean, I also have a basketball hoop in my clinic, so it just is, it depends on what you have resource wise, but Right. They need to be with their friends for the, and then they get support and their friends see their progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I agree. I was, I'm always a big proponent of like, let's get you back with your peer group. Let's get you back doing what you want to do, especially because the kids that I've seen, the sports that they play, their whole identity is wrapped up in, I'm a soccer person. Yeah. Like that's who I am. That's who my friends are. Like I'm a soccer girl. That's what I do. Yeah. So you say, well, okay. So let's get you back to doing that. You know, let's get you back in some form of it if possible. Um, and these are hard decisions when it comes to return to play. And I mean, that's, we can go, that's a whole other podcast, but because we're talking more about kids with chronic pain, do your teens with chronic pain that you see, are they still playing a sport even though they have chronic pain? It depends. Some of them are not functioning at all. They're not Mm -hmm. getting out of bed. They're not going to school. I don't let them play a sport if they're not going to school. Of course. Yeah. They wouldn't usually be able to, but um, for sure there are some who do. A really fascinating case of functional neurologic disorder in a, a high level athlete who was like, I can play, I can play, I can play. And then this one thing happens and I collapse to the ground and I can't move. Just so fascinating. And they knew the trigger and they didn't know how to deal with it. And we had all these counseling and physical therapy because they were strong. They were active. They ate well, they slept well, but then this one thing happened and you would not, they looked paralyzed. It Mm. was amazing. And I couldn't reproduce it in the clinic, but they had a video of it. So if you hadn't seen it, you would almost not believe it. Right. So like the, the thing to, to do, it was not take them out of their sport. It's how do we manage this stressor? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh man. Kids are complicated. Right. I think one thing, I I think one thing I really want to stress though, 
as something that I think a through line that should run through all of this and anyone who's working with children is they are not tiny adults. They're not tiny adults. They are not tiny adults. faster if you do the right thing. Right, right. Yeah. And what I mean by like, they're not tiny adults, like just because you have a 14-year-old with an adult-like injury of an ACL reconstruction, it, it does not mean that their rehab looks like what an adult rehab would look like. No. We have a lot of conversations about how boring rehab is in rehab because it's hard to keep them motivated for so long. Mm-hmm. Like how many knee extensions can you really do at 12 years old? They're boring. Right. right. It's true. <laughs> it's not like you're training for knee extension Olympics. You're training to go back to something totally different. <laughs> right. Right. Or like how many different balance exercises can you do? But it's super important in that age group. Yeah. You know, so important. So, but I get it. Um, Okay. So is there anything that as we kind of start to wrap things up, is there anything that we didn't hit on that you're like, I really want people to know this or what would you, how would you wrap this up? What are the key points you want people to remember? I think you just have to remember that talking to the kid and listening to the kid and believing what they have to say impacts the kid the most even though the parent is probably going to be there contributing and that it's, it's hard to decide if the parent should stay or the parent should go. But usually the, the, the way that they need to be present impacts the rehab. So I think if you have the opportunity to observe that for a session or two and see how it impacts participation and then changing it, you might potentially have better outcomes. Yeah. Great advice. And now where can people find you if they have questions they want to learn more about what you're doing. You just said you're writing a blog post. So oh, yeah. where where can we find all of everything you? Um, I tweet a lot, probably more than I should, a Gordon55. I'm also on Instagram, which is not super, super physical therapy specific, but does occasionally include PT related things. I just like pretty pictures. Um, so those are the most common ways. And then I do have a blog, which is linked through my Instagram. It's a combination of PT and health and women's sports stuff because I'm really into women's basketball and uh-huh. those are those are the key topics and the upcoming post depending on when this uh, podcast is released will be about um, the new pediatric guidelines for weight loss which includes pharmacology and bariatric surgery in children which I have a problem with and um, about an event that I just attended that was for interdisciplinary uh, collaboration at University of Washington with their medical students and their pharmacy students and PT students about weight stigma in healthcare. So that's the next one coming, but the topics are kind of random. So Sounds great. And just again, Twitter and Instagram is agordon55. So best Correct. places to find you. Now, yes. last question I ask everyone, knowing where you are in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? I would give, I'm glad that I knew that you asked this question. I, I know about this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> my advice for my 20 year old self is don't give time to people who don't deserve it. I Spend love it. time with people who bring you joy. Call your family members. If you don't get to see them and tell them you love them. Life's too short to spend it on people who suck. Best advice of the year so far. I love it. Abby, thank you so much for coming on, giving up your time. This was great. I love the conversation and I will see you in San Diego. 
Yes. Look forward to it. San Diego yes. Paint Summit. San Diego Paint. Shout out to San Diego Paint Summit. I believe there's still tickets available. It is February 7th, 18th and 19th. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. I, no, I that's correct. Conference too. Yeah. That is correct. And yep. it's President's Day weekend. Um, it's the week after the Super Bowl. So no excuse. Um, so you can go in person or you can buy tickets online. Just, you know, look for San Diego Pain Summit dot com. I think it is. Think anyway, so. Google it. Google San Diego Pain Summit. Um, they've got a great lineup. So, Abby, I will see you there. Thank you so much again. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy and smart. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.